Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. again and I nice to have everyone and those who are watching online I'm glad that you are able to join us this this morning um, we are on the series of the book of Colossians and I love to give this title the tour de Colossae and believe it or not we are on the 18th day of our tour and we are in the third chapter we are almost coming to the very end of the third chapter Even today's subject is more, I would say, more preaching than teaching, but yet we are going to touch on some sensitive points as we go through this, which are very useful for individuals as fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, and children. So I wanted to pay attention to this as we go through this, and you can take down your own notes as we make some cross-references to the Scriptures. So please open your Bibles to uh, Colossians chapter 3, Even though you heard the passage being read from verse 18 to 25, I'm going to only focus from 18 to 21, and then we move on. So let me give you the context so that you understand what we are going, and you know the context very, very, very well by now. Now, Paul is addressing to the saints in Colossae. There was a problem they were facing about the false teachers. So the first two chapters, he's talking about how the teachings of Christ and Christ himself are superior. And third chapter that we are looking at is transition from the theory, theoretical part, to the practical part of how do you live. It's important for us to, in light of, to understand today's message, to understand the verse 1 on chapter 3, where Paul reminds everybody, since you have been raised with Christ, since you have been raised with Christ, meaning that because you are believers, because you are the saints, and he said, then he said that you must seek and set your minds on things above, and, and, and we are Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and we are, their life is now hidden with Christ in God. And that's how Paul starts this. Then, of course, he spells out their behavior, and we looked at the various behaviors about sexual immorality and greed and anger and do not lie. And, and then, we, then we looked at last Sunday... Because you are a believer, that's important, that you have to wear different clothing. That's what I looked at last time. So Apostle Paul is talking about the new man with new clothing. The new clothing is worn by the believer. So it is every one of us, we believers. So when you wear this new clothing, church, you begin to impact the surrounding. It's not only just personal, but it's relational. It's not just personal, but it's relational. It affects the other people in your life because we live among other men and women in this community. So we have an impact on the society in which we live. That's exactly what Paul says in these verses that we're going to look at. So if you look at the verses 318 to 41 is what I'm supposed to cover. 
Paul is talking about the responsibility that we have when wearing this new clothing. This new clothing will have two spheres of influence in the third chapter. One is in our own homes, and the secondly, in our own society. So those are things that he's talking about. So let me break it down for us to understand. I've given the title, Building a Christian Home. And the two things that we can look at is our lives at home. It starts at home. That is from verses 18 to 21. And then we have our lives at work or outside. So even the lives at home is being broken into four components. We look at about wives, about husbands, about children, and about parents. And lives at work is bond servants and masters in our workplaces. So that's what you're seeing there. Now, like many other Greco-Roman moral writings, four of the New Testament letters contain passage with instructions for particular groups of people within the Christian homes or the households. So, since they are similar to legal and moral codes of conduct, these texts that we are going to study today is called the household codes. So for those who are interested, I'm just going to show you a different passage of scriptures where you can see the household codes written by Apostle Paul and Apostle Peter. It's in Colossians, in Ephesians, in Titus, and in Peter. So let me start by asking you the question, what was God's original design for the family? Church, sadly, when you think about this, many don't have great memories. Many. Some of, some of us may, some of, but most of us don't. We don't have great memories about families. In fact, in the scripture, I don't know if you, if you ever noticed this, there are only four chapters without sin. Genesis 1 and 2. Revelation 21 and 22. So, therefore, even the scripture has many tragic stories about families. That's what they're seeing in the scriptures. It shows the devastating effect sin has on the family. Take Adam and Eve. They sinned and Adam responded by blaming his wife. They parented two children, Cain and Abel, and one of the sons killed the other. And we look at Abraham, God's chosen man. He married two wives, breaking God's design, and he eventually kicked one wife and a child out of the house, and we still have problems in the Middle East. Jacob married several wives like his grandfather, and we see that his 12 sons eventually sold their younger brother into slavery. I want you to notice the family feud that's happening in the Bible. Men of God. David too espoused many wives, and his son raped his half-sister. Then that daughter's brother Absalom killed the son that raped her. Imagine family feud. When we consider the biblical narrative, we see many family relationships that were broken by sin. Church, even today, 6,000 plus years after, the story is no different at all. It's the same. Sin still destroys family relationships. And therefore, we don't have great models of God's design. In fact, today, when we see the effects of sin in the 
it, if you can see, see it even in the redefinition of marriage. In some cultures, men can take many women as wives. And today we know that homosexual marriage is acceptable. The definition has been changed, it's been redefined. So the question is, what is God's design for the family? How can we have the relationships God meant us to have? So a personal challenge to every one of us. There's one thing to talk about theory. is another thing to personalize the message. So let me ask you a question here to every one of you. Because you are either a husband or a wife, a father or a son, or a daughter or a mother, whatever. You fit into one of those roles, so the question is that, this is a question for you. Are the relationships I have with my family, my wife, my husband, my son, my daughter, my father, my mother, is it a proper reflection of my heavenly standing in Christ? That's the question. Let me ask the question again. Are the relationships I have with my family, whatever the role that you play, is it a proper reflection of my heavenly standing in Christ? So Colossians chapter 3, Paul says that one's relationship with Christ should affect everything. If you are a believer, Paul says, it will affect your relationship. So church, when you have a problem in your home, who should you be blaming first? Who should you be looking at? Look at the mirror. Don't look anywhere else. So Paul begins this chapter talking about the believer's new position. So let's look at, go back to verse number one again. If then, what does that mean? Yes, we say since or because you were raised with Christ. Seek those things above or set your hearts on things above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. That's how Paul starts this passage. So what do you seek those things above? Because you are raised with Christ. You're wearing new clothing. That is why you have to seek. So what about our relationship? How should my position in Christ affect my family life? How should my position in Christ affect my social life? That is what Paul is addressing in this passage that you heard being read today. So today's lesson, I'm just going to focus only our responsibility in the family. That's all I'm going to do because we won't have time to go through everything. So with that being said, let's dive into today's text today. Text, verse number 18. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Yes, you heard it right. Wives, submit to your own husbands, the word own is important as well, as is fitting in the Lord. You know, I can certainly see wives and the women are looking at me saying, Pastor, you're opening a big can of worms here. Because church, come on church, let us see what the scripture says. This is not my opinion. I want you to come along with me as I try to unwrap this text. What does it mean by wives? Submit to your own husbands as it is fitting to the Lord. If you look at the New Living Translation, it says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as it is fitting. Follow along. 
for those who belong to the Lord. New Living Translation, for those who belong to the Lord. So what Paul means is that a wife must submit to a husband because this is fitting or appropriate in a position in Christ. That's why you submit to the husbands. So the moment you hear the word submission, you get tight-fisted because this word often carries a very nasty connotation in our modern-day society. The word submission. But it must be noted, church, that submission does not mean inferiority. It does not mean that. Submit is actually a military word. The word simply means to arrange under rank. It means to come up under. A sergeant is not inferior to a captain. They're equal. Their roles are different. However, to have order in the military, authority must exist in the relationship or chaos will ensue. Church, I worked for a longest time for a contracting company, and as a person responsible in my later positions as a VP for engineering for nearly 20 years, I have to submit to the consultants, I want you to understand this, some of whom were less qualified or less experienced than me. I have to submit because of the ranks in the construction industry. I need to submit to the authority. It does not mean I'm inferior. It means that is my role that I have assumed in the industry. Because the consultants are answerable to the clients for whom the project is built. That order will bring sanity. In the same way, when God made the husband and wife relationship, He made it with the order so that it would function properly. So submission does not imply the wife is less than husband, for the scripture clearly proclaims, listen to this, every one of you, Galatians chapter 3, 28, there is neither Jew nor slave, Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. That's what you're seeing in Romans 3, 28. So still the question remains, church, why is the woman called to submit to the man when they're equal? How is it reflected in the rest of the scripture? That's the question. The answer to this, we need to go back to the creation story, the creation narrative. Now, watch as the the words appear on the screen. Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Listen carefully, church. 26. Then God said, come along with me, please. Let us make man in our own image, in our image, according to our likeness. That's what God said. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. I'm just going to leave this passage on the screen for a minute for us to digest this. 26, God said, let us make man in our own image, in our image, according to our likeness. Verse 27, so God created in his own image, the image, in the image of God, he created them, 
male and female, he created them. So if you go to the creation narrative, we see that the Trinitarian God made man in his own image. He made two people, listen church, who would become one flesh. You see, leave to cleave. You become one flesh. You're not two anymore. So in marriage, the male and the female come together as one unit. That's the reflection of the Trinity. It's a reflection of the Trinity. How do we see this, you may ask? We see this in God's plurality and concurrent unity, three in one. That's what you're seeing. In addition, a crucial aspect of his deity is the authority and submission within the Godhead, which is also reflected in the marriage union. Look at this passage, please. 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul writes this. But I want you to realize, listen church, that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of, womb of the woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. If you don't come along, you'll miss my point. What do you see in this passage? What do you see in this passage? We see the headship within God's person. God is the head of Christ. So what you're seeing, even though God the Father and God the Son are co-equal, and you have learned that, the Son submits to the Father. He obeys the Father. Now Christ is in no way inferior to God. But he submits to God, to the Father. In a similar vein, when God made male and female in, in his image, and he brought them together in marriage, he put authority and submission in that relationship because you see authority and submission in the relationship of the Trinitarian God within the three of them. The head of the woman, probably better stated as head of the wife, is man. The marriage relationship is a reflection of the Trinitarian relationship. The unity and the authority in the marriage is a reflection of how mankind is made in the image of God. So what do we see today, church? The fall brought in calamity in this union of marriage. It is sin. Look at this verse. Verse Genesis 3, 16. It starts this way. I put only the part that's relevant for us. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. It'll be another day for us to discuss that in detail. But I want you to focus on the second part. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. When is God saying this? After the fall. Not before. After the fall. And God is telling the woman, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So what does that mean? Your desire shall be for your husband. New Living Translation, look at this. Your desire, it makes it clear for us, you, are, you will desire to control your husband. 
That's what it means, that word desire, that's what it means. Because of the fall, you will desire to control your husband and he will rule over you. Can you see the calamity happening now within the household place? So the word desire means that the woman would no longer naturally desire to serve her husband, but to seek to control her husband. She would seek to manipulate him in order to get her own way. Also, the man, instead of loving his wife, and we're going to look at it in the next verse, he would seek to rule and to seek to dominate her. So God is saying that Eve would desire to rule over her husband, but her husband would instead rule over her. You can see the problem in the household. So God created a mutually interdependent relationship with the desire for one spouse to lead the other, but sin brought the dispute. So the battle of sexes had begun. But both man and the woman would now seek the upper hand in marriage. The man who was to lovingly care for and nurture his wife would now seek to rule her, and the wife would desire to wrestle control from her husband. So one of the beautiful aspects of the Trinity is that God the Father does not dominate or force Christ to submit him. Submission and authority within the Trinitarian God in the context of God's love for the Son. It's love. In fact, we see in John 4, 8, 1 John 4, 8, God is defined as love. It just says God is love. So in the context of this loving relationship, the Son submits. Church, in the same way, as a husband, I'm not called to demand that my wife submit to me, I am to love her, to care for her, to encourage her, to grow in God and serve her. My wife to submit to me willingly when I do that. I cannot force it on her. Husbands, you command it by your love. You cannot demand it by your rule. The submission is something you do command, you cannot demand. The perfect model for wife to emulate is the Lord's submission, which we saw earlier in 1 Corinthians 11.3. But I want you to know that head of the, every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. As I said, church, God... Christ was never inferior or less in comparison to God the Father. However, Christ willfully and joyfully submits to the Father. So in the same way, church, the wife must submit to her husband because this is fitting of the Lord. So church, remember this. God started building of a community on the earth with the marriage. Because only with the marriage you can build the community. And when the marriage does not work correctly, everything else becomes distorted. So you may say, okay, pastor, I get it. As a wife, I should submit to my husband. So what is the husband expected to do? These are genuine questions that we ask. What is he expected to do? That's what you see in the next verse. Husbands do what? 
love your wives. Aha. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Here's the point I want you to understand. Looking at the context in the Greco-Roman world, this statement that Paul is making, or the Holy Spirit is making through Paul to the saints in Colossae, is actually a pretty radical statement. For the recipients of this message, this is a radical statement. Why? William Barclay, in his commentary, he says this, Under Jewish law, a woman was a thing. The possession of a husband, just as much as his house, or his flocks, or his material goods. She had no legal rights whatsoever. Imagine, church, so Paul's teaching, telling the man, you love this thing. It ran against the sway and sway of Jewish and Greek society. So Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, he puts it more clearly what this love truly means. You remember, church, at the very beginning of the introduction, I told you there were two letters that were sent. And one was the letter to Colossians, and the other one is the letter that was written to the church in Laodicea. And the scholars have, <coughs> have said that this is the letter of Ephesians. So when you look at, <coughs> excuse me, the letter of Ephesians is a circular letter. It is meant to be read in every church. It applies to us. See what Paul says about the role of the husband. Husbands, you can't take it lightly. Every one of you. Those who are married, those who are engaged to be married, this is a serious responsibility. If you are not prepared for it, don't get into marriage. We witnessed one yesterday. And this is exactly what I told Keith. If you are not ready with this, don't get into marriage. It's a serious responsibility. Look at this, church. Husbands, <clears throat> love your wives. How? How do I love my wife? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. These two go hand in hand, submission of the wife and love of the husband. Remember, God and Christ. Submission and love. So, women and wives, I want you to listen carefully. I read a survey in, in pre preparing this message, the top ten reasons why men fall out of love. Women, listen carefully. Husbands, these are not excuses for your behavior, but this is what the secular world is telling me. Listen. He doesn't feel admired or appreciated. Too much negativity in the home. You are fundamentally incompatible. It wasn't love to begin with. The emotional intimacy has disappeared. You are too clingy or needy. He can't be his true self with you. You don't meet his needs. This is when one, one survey says why men lose their love on, in their wives. Let us for a moment assume, church, 
all the husbands, that all of this is true of you. So I'm talking to the wives of the women. Does this give license for your husband to stop loving you? That's the question. Let's assume for a moment this is how you behave in your homes, wives. Does this give license for the man to stop loving you? Let's examine this passage again, church. It says, husbands, love your wives just how? As Christ loved the church. The model is given to you, husbands. You don't just love your wife by giving roses or some flowers or some clothing or some food and vehicles and whatnot, but love your wives just as Christ loved the church. So how did Christ love the church? What did he do for the church? How was his love for the church shown? The answer is found in Romans 5.8. And I share this to everybody I'm counseling. Take this to heart, church. Romans 5.8. So, in Ephesians, we see that you love your wife the way that Christ loved the church. And Paul very clearly articulates in, the, to this, in this epistle, but God demonstrates his own love toward us that in that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the demonstration of love. That is how God is expecting husbands to love your wives. So when he says, while we are still sinners, he, God did not wait for you and I to repent or to say sorry. He did not wait for us to reach out to him. He loved us because God is love. While we were still ungrateful, unethical, unspiritual, and we were ugly, he chose to love. Husbands, that is what you have been called to do. When you do that, she will submit. That is what we are called to do. So when Colossians uh, 3.19, we looked at it, it says, Husbands, love your wives, do not be bitter toward them, meaning do not be harsh with them. If you truly understand that, you both are together as one body because you live to cleave. When she is hurt, you must feel the pain. When she is crying, you must feel that anxiety. If not, you have not come together as one unit. Do this exercise. Just pinch your leg and see whether you are hurting. Yes, you will. Because a leg is part of your body. So if you are truly be united, you will sense it. When was the last time you treated your wife harshly? You failed as a husband. If I am to go one step further, to show you your responsibility, most of you husbands and men will be surprised. You may feel guilty. Look at this. Husband, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. And he didn't stop there. He says that he might... Do what? Sanctify and cleanse her 
with the washing of water by the word. What does that mean, church? You have been asked to love your wife so that he might what? Sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. It means when a husband's love for his wife is like Christ's love for his church, he will continually seek to help purify her from any sort of defilement. He will seek to protect her from world's contamination. He will protect her, her holiness, her virtue, her purity in every way. He will never induce her to do that which is wrong or unwise or expose her to that which is less than good. That's what you are seeing here, church. That's what you are seeing here. So the application question, every man in the house and every husband who are listening to this, what can be said about you? Do you love your wife as Christ loves the church? If you are seated next to your wife, don't ask anybody else. Just turn and ask, do I love you like Christ loved the church? Ask now, that's okay. And if you can go home together, that'll be great. Okay. Let's, so after talking about the wife and the husband, Paul moves on to the children and parents. Look at verse 20 now. Children, obey your parents in, the, in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. What is Paul saying here? If you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you are truly a believer, because that's how Paul started in verse number one, even if it is hard to obey your parents, you can do it for the Lord, and you know that He is pleased with you. That's what he says. That's what Paul says here. Even if your parents don't ever seem pleased with you, the Lord is pleased if you obey them in obedience to Him. This means, church, you are obeying cheerfully, not grudgingly. This means looking for opportunities to serve your parents by helping, being helpful around the home. It means telling your parents that you are thankful for them, that you appreciate all they do for you. Yes, this is radically countercultural for us today. But it is pleasing to the Lord. You know, church, when you look at our world today, it is marked by a lack of authority. Children, they no longer obey their parents. Students have no respect for teachers. I remember when I was growing up, even on the streets when you see your teacher, you step away at a, at, from, the, from the street and just give a respect. It's out of respect. But I was, lecture, I was teaching in Seychelles, and, and you know what? I still remember the first day, they call you like this sometimes, the students. Come here. Growing up, we can't do that, Brother Bruno. We'll be standing upside down in the, church, in the school. But today, come here, come here. Employees, we dishonor the employers. Everyone denies the authority of God. But Scripture declares that when society has gone to these extremes, they will ultimately come under the curse of God and His judgment. Please listen to this passage, and, and I won't take this seriously. Isaiah passage. This is the characteristics of Israel right before God judged them by Assyrians. 
See what happens. Youths oppress my people. Women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides lead you astray. They turn you from the path. Oh, Lord, the Lord takes his place in court. He rises to judge the people. You may say, Pastor, you don't know my dad, how abusive he can be. You don't know my mom, how wicked and, and shrewd she can be. How do I obey them? When they ask me to do immoral and unethical things, when they are not walking in the paths of righteousness, they are not a good example. When the wickedness rules and when their instructions violate the law of God, church, please note that this obedience that Paul is asking us to do has limits. Children should not obey anything that would violate God's word and their consciences. We see, the, like the apostles, when they were commanded by the Pharisees to no longer preach in the name of Christ, in Acts chapter 5 we see this, this is what they said, we must obey God rather than man. So Paul addresses these behaviors of the parents in the next verse, so we're going to talk about parents, but children, remember this, other than the exceptions where this, the parents are asking you to sin, your implicit obedience to your parents pleases the Lord. I always said this. My dad used to say, comply and complain. Do it. we talk about it later. And I reap the benefit of that today as a man, old man, thinking back. So let us see what the response to the parents are. That's the last verse we're going to look at. Paul moves from the children, obey your parents, he talks about the responsibility of the parents. All of us are guilty of this. Verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Do not provoke means to stir up, often to anger or to a fight. Fathers can provoke their children to anger and rebellion and discouragement in many ways. Let us examine a few. I want you to ask yourself if this fits you. I'm going to show it on the screen for you. Number one, behaviors that provoke our children. Number one is unpredictability. A kid never knows if his dad will blow up over a minor infraction or will let a major offense go by. He don't know how you'll react. Number two, unreasonableness. A parent won't listen to the child's explanation or consider the circumstances before passing judgment. The moment you hear that the child has done something wrong, you are not there to listen to the analysis behind this, why, the reason why it happened. You are already thinking about how do I punish him? When can I hit him? I still remember an example. I hope my son won't mind saying this. He, you know, for me, anything below 90 for math is a fail. Trust me, I'm very hard on that because I'm a math man. So one day I still remember coming from work and, and, and he must have got the math marks and he was seated at the dining table. I still remember I walked in and he was seated with head down and all that. And he said, and I didn't even ask for the mark, but I knew I was going to get to know that. He said, Dad, don't say a word. I'm thinking, why is he saying this? 
Then, then he said, I'm really mad at myself. I'm really trying to see what kind of sin has he committed. To see, he got about 85 or 86 for math. And he knew how serious I am. But when he said that how mad I am about myself, honestly, I learned a very powerful lesson as a father. Because when children make mistakes, they know it's a mistake. They regret. But you could do one of two things. You can make it worse, or you can work with them. So we should always understand that the children don't take their mistakes lightly. Even though they may not admit. That's the lesson I learned that day. Okay, unfairness. A parent gives a harsh punishment for a minor matter. Favoritism. One child gets away with murder and, the, and the another is treated very sternly. Selfishness. A parent uses a child to meet the parent's needs without regard for the child's needs. These are all from a survey. Criticism without praise. Is the parents rarely praise a child's positive behavior and often criticize his faults. If the child is only listening every time the child is making a mistake and not being appreciated for anything that the child has done, you are provoking the child. Simple as that. Insensitivity. A parent won't listen to me or minimizes what, a, what the child is important. The problem, what is important for him, may not be important for you, but listen to it. You minimize it, you provoke the child. Unavailability, this is where most of us are guilty of. A parent is absent or too busy when the child needs him. Breaking promises, which teaches a child not to trust what his parents say. You know, I am guilty of this because I often, I get to blame by my daughter. I tell her, I'll take you to McDonald's. When she asks for something, I say, I'll take it to day after or tomorrow or something like that. When the tomorrow comes, I forget, but she won't forget. Dada, you said it, you said it, you said it. I grew, grew up hearing this word over and over again because I keep breaking the promise on McDonald's with her. But breaking promises... By doing that, we are provoking the child. Next one is hypocrisy. A child sees a parent putting on a front of righteousness before others, but living differently at home. You provoke the child. You can fool everybody in the church. You cannot fool your children in your home. Let's be clear on that. You can fool everybody in the society. You want a true testimony? Ask the child to write a testimony about yourself. Ask your wife or your husband to write a testimony about yourself. The, the next point is legalism. A parent lays down the law on pretty issues, puts more weight on keeping the rules than on helping a child deepen his relationship with God and with the parents. So parents, if any of these behaviors describe your parenting, ask your children's forgiveness and make an effort to change. If you glance at this list again, you will note that none of these behaviors describe the Heavenly Father's dealings with His children. Here are the ways you can change, church, very quickly. I must accept my responsibility to father or mother my children. I must make grace and love, not discipline, my main emphasis with my children. 
I must motivate my children to be all that God wants them to be. I know having raised two rowdy kids in my own home, here is what I learned from my father, and I pass it on to you. The greatest moment will be when you can, when the child can come and talk to you, not about the good, but about the bad. Having that confidence that my dad will listen. And you can ask both my children. I was a listener. So they could come and share the good, bad, and the ugly. You have won them if, you are, if they are able to share the good, bad, and the ugly. Only you will know as a parent. Can they come and tell you the bad things? Good things, yes. Bad things. Parents, if it's not a battle of prestige with your kids. Remember that if they feel intimidated, they will seek worldly counsel which will be contrary to the word of God and the ways of God. So do not provoke children. Do not make them discouraged. So in conclusion, this is what Paul is telling this church. To the believers, exhorting a change of behavior, he says, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. And parents, provoke not your children. And Paul moves on to talk about the Christian in a workplace, which we'll catch up next time when we are together. Can I ask you all to rise, please, and the worship team to come? I'm just going to pray before we sing this song. Let us pray. Let's wait for the worship team to come. Let's pray, and then we'll join singing the last hymn. Because as I, as I said earlier, every one of us fit into one of those roles. Either you are a wife or a husband or a child or a parent. I know that we all have made mistakes. Can we take a moment of silence just to close our eyes, bow our heads, and, and tell God, God, I am sorry. In light of what I have heard, help me to change. To be a good wife. To be a good husband. To be a good child to be a good parent because I am a changed person, because I am a believer. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the exhortation that was given to the saints in Colossae. Because they were believers, and you have used your servant Paul to, to exhort them about the change of behavior as a wife, as a husband, as a child, as a parent. And even as we heard this message being expounded to us, Master, every one of us, we are guilty at some point in our lives, O oh God. And we come to you with a contrite heart right now. We want our families to be restored, our relationships to be restored, so that, Master, that when I wear this new clothing as the believer, that it will be seen in my behavior. So help us. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.